And I'm Mandy. And today Mandy's going to bring us a case from overseas. He is Scottish, but I guess we're not going to be in Scotland the whole time, so (laughs) we're going to get to hear... Yeah, anyway, what are we talking about? Okay, we are talking about Dennis Andrew Nilsson. Dennis was born on November 23rd, 1945 in Fraserburg-Aberdeenshire. He's the second of three born to Elizabeth Duthie White. And Duthie. Duthie. And okay. Olav Magnus Mokshim. Uh, okay, so they adopted the surname of Nilsson. I don't know how that works. I don't know how you just adopt a surname, but uh, you do. So um, he's Nilsson. They're Nilsson. They don't want to be White or Mokshim. They want to be Nilsson. So <laughs> his parents' marriage was very challenging. And after the birth of their third child... His mother, Elizabeth, decided that she had, quote, rushed into marriage without thinking. All right. I thought that was really funny because you've had three kids so far. like With the same guy. Same guy. But she rushed into marriage without thinking. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, whatever. Um, so, the couple divorced in 1948. So, it's literally been three years. So, it was a baby a year. So, it was pretty quick. All right. She rushed. Yeah, she rushed. She rushed into a lot of things, it seems like. All right, so Elizabeth, her parents are Andrew and Lily, and they're very supportive of their daughter, and so she and her three children moved in with her parents. And Dennis Nilsson's earliest memories were of family picnics in the Scottish countryside with his mom and his siblings, and he was really, really attached to his grandfather, and he just remembers long walks in the countryside where he'd be carried on his shoulders. It was like something he just had these very fond memories about his grandpa. He called his grandpa the greatest hero and protector. Whenever his grandfather, who was a fisherman, was at sea, he said, life would be empty for me until he returned. So very, very, very attached to Mm. his grandpa. Okay. But also, you know, his dad was gone, so he was very attached to his grandpa. October 31st, 1951, while fishing in the North Sea, his his grandfather died of a heart attack at the age of 62. His body was brought ashore, ashore and returned to the White family, or... Yeah, they're white. The other one's Nelson. Uh, I'm like, who? The white family um, home prior to the burial. Okay, so um, Nelson later describes his most vivid childhood recollection is his mother crying and asking him if he wanted to see his grandfather. So he's little at this point. He was born in 45, so he is six years old. His mom says, do you want to see your grandfather? And so he's six. He does not understand. I have a six-year-old. I don't think he would understand this. So he's taken into the room where his grandfather is laying in an open coffin. And he says he gazes upon the body and his mother tells him that his grandfather is sleeping and that he had also gone to a better place. He, Nilsson says he was traumatized by the viewing of this corpse, which led him to his future psychopathy. Okay, so Nilsson's mother later married a builder named Andrew Scott, with whom she had four more children in four years. Four more children in four years. It is quick style around that place. Although, quick style. Although Nilsson initially resented his stepfather, who he viewed as a very unflared, unfair disciplinarian, he said that he gradually came to respect him, and then the family moved to Stryken, in 1955. I don't know where all these places are, but they're overseas. All right. Okay. (laughs) So as Nelson progressed into his adolescence, he found that life in Stryken was limiting, right? He's like, there's not any entertainment. There's no amenities. There's hardly any career opportunities. Um, You know, he respected his parents' efforts to provide and care for his children, but he was kind of resenting the fact that his family was pretty poor, much more so than his peers. And he felt like his mom and his stepfather really made no effort to improve their lifestyle. So when he hit puberty, he discovered that he was gay. He's homosexual, which initially confused and shamed him. So he kept his sexuality hidden from his family and the few friends that he had. So because many of the boys, okay, we're getting a little crazy now, okay? So because many of the boys that he was attracted to had facial features similar to those of his younger sister. Ew. Sylvia is her name. 
He decided that he would sexually fondle her, believing that his attraction towards boys might just be a manifestation of the care that he felt for her. So already that whole statement's crazy. Um, (laughs) On another occasion, he fondled the body of his older brother as his older brother was sleeping. And as a result of this, Olaf Jr., who is his older brother, began to suspect his brother was gay and regularly belittled him in public, referring to Nilsson as a hen, which is a Scottish dialect for girl. All right, so Nilsson decided he wanted to join the army, so after passing his exams at the age of 16 in September of 61, he started his training with the Army Catering Corps at St. Omer Barracks in Aldershot, Hampshire. Within weeks, he began to excel in his army duties, and he later described his three years of training as, quote, the happiest of my life. So he's finally getting really happy. He's finding friends. He's surrounded by men. (laughs) Yes, he is. Very good point. In 1964, he passed his initial catering exam and was officially assigned to the 1st Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers in Osnabrück, West Germany. (laughs) That's so long. Where he served as a private. Following his two years of service, he returned to Aldershot where he passed his official catering exam before being deployed to serve as a cook for the British Army in Norway. So I told you, he's all over the place. West Germany, Norway, Scotland, England, like everywhere. All right. So a little more about this career. In 67, he was deployed to the state of Aden, where he again served as a cook at a prison. The posting was more dangerous than his previous postings in West Germany and Norway. And he later recalled his regiment losing several men, often in ambushes en route to the army barracks. He was actually kidnapped by an Arab taxi driver at one point who beat him unconscious and placed him in the trunk of his car. And when he was dragged out of the trunk, Nilsson grabbed a jack handle. I guess, what is that? Maybe a jackhammer, maybe? And they just... A jackhammer? <laughs> That'd be hilarious. You know what it might be? Something that you change the tire with? Oh, yeah. A right? car jack. That. So a jack handle. And knocked the taxi driver to the ground and beat him unconscious. He then locked the man in the man's own trunk. Of the taxi and left him. Which is really funny. He's like, fuck you. I'm going to do it right back to you. Oh, no. uh, Caitlin's shaking her head. Okay. <laughs> so, when he did, completed his deployment in Aden, he returned to the UK and was assigned to serve with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders at Seton Barracks in Plymouth, Devon. Throughout his service with this regiment, he was required to cook for 30 soldiers and two officers on a daily basis. He served at these barracks for one year before being transferred with the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders to Cyprus in 69. Months later, he was transferred to West Berlin, where the same year he had his first sexual experience with a female. Oh. Yeah. Well. But what kind was, it was a sex worker. Um, whose services he solicited. He bragged of this encounter, but later said that he found intercourse with a female both overrated and depressing. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yep. All right. Sounds like she wasn't doing her job very well. I guess not. So between October and December of 72, he started to live with his family, as he considered his next career move, he's like, I've done all of these things. I've been all these places with deployment, and I don't know what I want to do next. And on more than one occasion, in the three months that he had lived with his parents again, his mother voiced her opinion as to her being more concerned with his lack of female companionship than his career and of her desire to see him marry and start a family. On one occasion, Nilsson joined his older brother, remember who called him a hen, Olaf, his sister-in-law, and another couple to watch a documentary about homosexual men. This is a bad idea, guys. What? Okay. (laughs) I don't know why. He spoke in defense of gay rights. A fight ensued, and Olaf Jr. decided to be a fucking baby as a grown man with a wife and tell their mom that Dennis was gay. Okay. I know, right? 
So Dennis Nelson never spoke to his older brother again and maintained only very sporadic written contact with his mom, his stepfather, and his younger siblings. And so then he decided to join the Metropolitan Police. He moved to London that December and began the training course. So now he's going to be in the police academy. In April of 73, Nelson completed his police training and was posted to Wellesden Green. He performed several arrests, but never had to physically subdue a member of the public. And during the summer and autumn of 73, he began frequenting gay pubs and engaged in several sexual, casual sexual encounters with men. He viewed these encounters as soul-destroying. Um, soul-destroying. Mm -hmm. And he said he would only lend his partner his body in a vain search for inner peace as he sought a lasting relationship. He's real dramatic. Very dramatic. So in August of the same year, he came to the conclusion that his personal lifestyle was at odds with his job as a policeman. His oh, really? Yep. His birth father had died the same month, leaving each of their the three children a thousand pounds, which is equivalent as of 2022 to 9,972 pounds. And in December, Nilsson's like, got some money. I'm resigning. So, okay. no more police either. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, he <laughs> says, what do I do next? Security guard. <laughs> so, the work was intermittent, He and he resolved to find more stable, secure employment. So, he found work as a civil servant in May of 74. He was initially posted on Denmark Street, where his primary role was to find employment for unskilled laborers. At his workplace, he was known to be quiet and very meticulous. In 79, he was appointed acting executive officer, and he was officially promoted to the position of executive officer, so not acting anymore, with additional supervisory responsibilities in June of 82. And then he transferred to Kentish Town, continuing his job until he's arrested. So obviously the dude gets arrested, so let's get into some of this shit, okay? So, Nilsson's first official brush, brush with the police came in 73. A man named David Painter, who's a young man who Nilsson had met at work, claimed that Nilsson had taken pictures of him while he was asleep. Painter was so upset about this that he required hospitalization as a result of their confrontation. Nilsson was brought in for questioning, but he was just released. He's like, no, nah, it didn't happen. There's no evidence. He's released. Never got in trouble. In November of 75, Nilsson encountered a 20-year-old man named David Galachin. Um, and the, David was being threatened outside of a, the pub by two men. So Nilsson intervened, intervened in the altercation and took Galachin to his room at 80 Tynemouth Road in Cricklewood, district of North London. So now he's in <laughs> London. I know, right? I just can't keep up with all these fucking names. Oh, I can't either. I just know that now he's in London. The two men spent the evening drinking and talking, and Nilsson learned that David had recently moved to London from Weston, Weston Super Mayor Somerset. <laughs> he was, the most importantly though, he was gay, unemployed, and he was living in a hostel. He spends the night. The next morning, they're like, let's move in together. Oh, good Lord. Of course, yeah. Because we just met each other. We're both gay. Neither of us really, well, one had a job, one didn't, and one had a place to live, and the other didn't. So it makes sense, right? Yeah. So after they get into their residence, David was like, okay, we need to find a bigger property. This is not big enough for us. So several days later, the pair view a vacant ground floor flat at 195 Melrose Avenue, and they decide to move into the property. So remember, this is a garden flat, and they have... They have the garden, like, outside of their house. Like, they have, like, access to that and just them. Like, it's just for them to use, okay? So, that is important. Okay, so this is their Melrose apartment. Can other people not see it? Um, They can see it, but I think that somehow it was that this was part of their property. So, they were in the garden, so you're downstairs, but then they were also given, like, the actual garden to use as their space outside. Nilsson later says, you know, he was sexually attracted to David, but the pair seldom slept together. Within a year of their moving to Melrose Avenue, the relationship between the two began to show signs of strain. 
Uh, they slept in separate beds. They began to bring home casual sex partners. And David later insisted that Dennis Snilson had never been violent toward him, but that he was verbally abusive and that they argued constantly. Dennis Nilsson later stated that following a heated argument in May of 77, he demanded David leave the residence and this is when they chose to end their relationship and their time together. Nilsson formed brief relationships with several other young men over the following 18 months, but none of these relationships lasted more than a few weeks and none of the men expressed any intention of living with him on a personal basis. So remember, he wants a relationship. Yeah. So that's what he's looking for. So that's why he wanted to move in so quickly with this guy, right? right. But, like, nobody that he's meeting wants to do any of that. Nobody's trying to do that. Yeah, they're like, let's just, it's just casual. Like, I'm not looking to be your soulmate. Yeah. So, Nilsson, at this point, becomes increasingly disturbed by his sexual encounters. And... It, he feels like it just reinforces how lonely he is. So he doesn't have his family. He's not close with his brother anymore. The relationship didn't work out with David. He's just like super depressed. So this is when he takes all that energy and doesn't send it to a good place. He decides to find his first victim. So he meets his first young victim in a pub on December 29th of 78 and invites him home. And he had done this on previous occasions, obviously. He invites people home all the time. But the next morning, uh, he's like, okay, this he can't leave. Like, this guy cannot leave me. And so he's overcome by a desire to prevent the young man from leaving. So he strangles him with a tie and then drowns him in a bucket of water. Did he not, did it not work when he strangled him? He had to make, he had to. He wanted to make drown sure. Drown him too? Yeah. He wanted to make sure. Double whammy. Okay. All right. So, guys, I'm just going to uh, give you a little forewarning. This dude is fucking crazy. He is a monster. And um, it doesn't sound like it thus far. Well, it just started to sound like it. But um, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, just giving you a little forewarning. It's going to get uncomfortable. <clears throat> it's going to get uncomfortable. All right. So, he takes the corpse of this young man to the bathroom to wash it. And then he places it back in his bed. Remember, he wants this guy to stay. You know, he's like... I don't want you to leave me. So he, later he remarks that he found the corpse beautiful. He attempted to have sex with it unsuccessfully, then spent the night sleeping next to the corpse. He finally hid the corpse under his floorboards. Remember, garden apartment, right? And there's nothing under him except what, a basement? Maybe. He kept it there for seven months. Oh, before removing it and burning the decaying remains in his back garden. So that's another thing that he did frequently was he started, he had fires in his backyard all the time. And his neighbors didn't really say anything, but he would literally just like burn shit all day. I mean, that's odd behavior. Mm -hmm. December 3rd, so it's been about a year, uh, of 79, he encounters his second victim. It's a Canadian tourist Kenneth Ockenden, and he is again at a pub. So following a day of sightseeing and drinking, so they hung out like all day. It ended at Nilsson's apartment. Nilsson again, what do you think? Afraid he's gonna leave him, right? Because he's like, we had this amazing day. This is my soulmate. He's like, yep, you're not gonna leave me. So this time he finds another like electrical cable. He strangles him to death. He cleans up the corpse as he did before and shares the bed with it overnight. He takes photos, he engages, engages in sex, and finally deposits the corpse under the floor, floorboards, removing it frequently and engaging in conversation as if he was alive. May 1980. So, I think the reason why there's so many months between is because, remember the first guy, he kept under the floorboards for seven months. So, I think it's once the decay process gets a certain uh, length of time, he's like, Ooh, time to find another partner. Yeah. And that's what he's doing. So, May 13th, 1980, he meets his third victim, Martin Duffy. Martin is a homeless 16-year-old, and he invites Martin to spend the night. So, Nilsson strangles Martin, drowns him before bringing him back to bed and masturbating over the teenager's corpse. Martin Duffy was kept in a wardrobe this time for two weeks 
before joining the second victim under the floorboards. So this time he doesn't even get rid of the second victim yet. He's still under there, but he's like, no, I'll just keep him in the wardrobe for a while. For two yeah. weeks. Yikes. His house must have stunk. I would assume so. He's in the garden department. Maybe he thought it'd be okay. All right, the next victim was a sex worker, Billy Sutherland, 27, who followed Nielsen home one night and was strangled. After that, 24-year-old Malcolm Barlow, who was an orphan with learning disabilities, he was strangled. By 1981, Nielsen had killed 12 men in the apartment. And by the time that Malcolm Barlow, the 24-year-old, was killed, Nielsen was forced to stuff him under the kitchen sink. Why do you think? Because he had so many other bodies in the house. He still? ran out of storage. Yep. Oh, good lord. He had half a dozen bodies hidden uh-uh. around the apartment. Yes. Six bodies hidden around his apartment. Okay. This is some Jeffrey Dahmer shit. Yeah. But, like, he's not dismembering them. He's just... Well, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> I told you. I sent Caitlin a message after I did this. I was like... This is fucked up. I was like, oh my God, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> okay, this part is, I think, where I felt a little nauseous. Um, he was forced to spray his rooms twice a day. And he had to get rid of flies that were hatching from the decomposing Blech. bodies. So, now the neighbors are noticing. No, Oh, now? Just now? Mm-hmm. The neighbors are like, dude... What is going on downstairs? It is stanky, right? So he's like, well, I think Nilsson's like, I think there's a structural problem with the building. Oh, yeah, that's what this fucking rancid smell is. If you have a is. structural problem, you okay. don't usually have a stinky one. Sure. But, right. They go hand in hand, you know? Get ready for this one. Okay. So to get rid of these corpses, he would remove all of his clothes. And he would start to dismember them. Look, you you brought it on. Um, On the stone kitchen floor with a large kitchen knife. So remember, he is very trained in catering and cooking. So he's very, very skilled with knives. Sometimes he would boil the skulls to remove flesh. I told you he's a monster. He would place organs and viscera in plastic bags for disposal. He buried limbs in the garden and in the shed. And he stuffed torsos into suitcases until he could rebur- he could burn the remains in a bonfire in his garden. And like I said, on occasions, he would burn fires literally all day. But nobody, none of his neighbors said anything about burning fires in the yard. I would be like, why is this guy burning fires all the time? And does he have a job? You know, well, his <laughs> like, house is smelly and he's burning things in the backyard all the time. What the fuck is going on? After he burnt these bodies he would crush the bones because he wanted to get rid of all the evidence right but foreshadowing here um the police found thousands of bone fragments in the garden later when they examined it because you can't just get rid of it even if you crush it it's not like you don't have fragments right in 1982 this puts a little like kind of hitch in his situation here he leaves that apartment and now he moves to a top floor apartment oh He's screwed That's going to be a problem. Uh, this one's Cranley Gardens in North London. There was no garden, no convenient floorboards because you're on the top floor. So that would be a bad idea. Uh, he was, Why did he move? I mean, it was Started probably just too bad? foul in there, I would think. Oh, he had to spray twice a day. Oh, God. So he's like, okay, I've moved. I'm, I'm going to be better, right? But he was unable to stop his crimes, and three more victims were killed in his apartment between his arrival and February of 83. These victims were identified as John Howlett, Archibald Graham Allen, and Stephen Sinclair. And this presented Nilsson with a really big problem. What are you going to do to get rid of these bodies, right? Mm-hmm. So there was no direct access to an outdoor space. I mean, you can't take these bodies down the stairs, right? So, he boils the head, feet, hands. He dissects the bodies into small pieces. That can be, tell me if this is a good idea, Caitlin, flush down the toilet. Duh. <laughs> and disposed of in plastic bags. 
You cannot flush body parts down a toilet. There's going to be a problem at some point, right? Okay. Foreshadowing. Oh, my God. <laughs> there were five other tenants at this apartment complex. None of them knew him very well. They knew of him, but they didn't really know him. In February of 83, this gets so sick. One of these tenants is like, what the fuck is happening with our draining system? Like our drains, our plumbing, all of it. Like what's going on? So they call a drain specialist, Dino Rod, which is hilarious. Instead of, what is it called here? I don't remember. Roto-Rooter. Oh. (laughs) Just Dino Rod. So to investigate drain blockage. So the tenants, there's five other tenants, they're all around. Nilsen's there. And the technician is outside, like, doing his job, right? Working on the sewer system. uh, They discover rotting human remains. And the guy descended into the manhole. Like, he went in there. And was decided that a full inspection would need to be conducted the next day because the police need to be called. So this dude goes in the manhole and is like, what? Holy fuck. All right, so remember, there's a police investigation that has to happen, right? So Nilsson's like, oh, shit. So he's like, okay, they're going to capture me, so I have to figure this out before tomorrow. Before tomorrow. <laughs> so There was no backup plan in place ever in this situation. Yes, it's bad. So he tries to cover his tracks by removing human tissue from the drain that night. So it's that. It is in his yeah. apartment. So it's, that, so it's that backed up. That he's like, oh, I'm going to get it out of here. Dude, it's down all the pipes. Like, you're fucked, right? So, he's trying to get it out of the drains. He's going, like, into other areas of the apartment building, trying to get it out of the drains. One of the neighbors downstairs. Yes. Is like, what is happening? Like, what are you doing? So, he's pulling out, like, plastic bags and, like, shit that's decomposed and disgusting stuff. So... It's reported that on the morning of February 9th, 83, he told a work colleague, he's laughing, he's like, if I'm not in tomorrow, I'll either be ill, dead, or in jail. Upon learning from fellow tenants that the top floor flat where the human remains had been flushed because they only go down, right? right. Belonged to Nilsen. There's a detective chief inspector, Peter J, and two colleagues, and they wait outside the house until Nilsen gets home from work. They're like, okay, we're going to wait. We're just going to wait. It doesn't matter how long it takes. we got to stay here because this is crazy. So when Nilsen gets home, DCIJ introduces himself and his colleagues and explains they had come to inquire about the blockage in the drains from his flat. He asks, he's like, why are you so interested in these drains? And he also asked if um, there were health inspectors around. I don't know what he's doing. So in response, Jay says... Uh, the other two are not health inspectors. They are police officers, and they were requested to access his flat, and they really want to get in there to discuss this matter further. So the three officers follow Nilsen into his flat, and they immediately are like, what the fuck is that smell? Awful. And they're like, it smells like rotting flesh. So Nilsen doesn't even try and lie anymore. Oh, God. He starts to confess right away, and he's like, yeah, there's remains in the cupboard. Oh, good Lord. They're like, we're not going to open the cupboard right now. But they ask him whether there's any other body parts to be found. Okay, they're like, okay, let's figure this out. He goes, it's a long story. It goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I want to get it off my chest, but not here at the police station. So he's then arrested. And cautioned on suspicion of murder before being taken to the Hornsey police station. They asked him if the remains in his flat belonged to one person or two. And he's just staring out the window and he's like, ah, 15 or 16 since 1978. <laughs> what? Hello. First you're trying to dig flesh Wait, out. so some of the remains were still from previous victims? I'm pretty sure he the brought the previous- them. Yep, yep, oh, yep. Jesus Christ. Yep. All right. So that evening, Detective Superintendent Chambers, accompanied by DCIJ and Bowen, uh, they go to Cranley Gardens, where the plastic bags were removed from the wardrobe. So they went into his cupboard wardrobe, and uh, they take them to a mortuary. One bag was found to contain two dissected torsos, 
one of which had been vertically dissected, and a shopping bag containing various internal organs. The second bag contained a human skull almost completely devoid of flesh, a severed head, and a torso with arms attached, but the hands were missing. So literally, these are giant bags. Giant bags. Two torsos? In an interview conducted on February 10th, Nilsson confessed that there were more human remains stowed in a tea chest in his living room. Um, other ones were inside an upturned drawer in his bathroom. An dis- upturned drawer? Yeah. I don't, like, you took the drawer and turned it over, I guess. Right? That but how the fuck? Okay. I don't know what he's doing. He's, like, trashing his house with dismembered body parts. The, the dismembered body parts were the bodies of three men. And he killed all of them by strangulation, usually with a necktie, he said. And one victim he could not name, and another he knew only as John the Guardsman, and a third he identified as Stephen Sinclair. He also told them that beginning December 78, he had killed 12 or 13 men at his former address. So then he gives away his former address. (laughs) He admits to having unsuccessfully attempted to kill approximately seven other people who had either escaped or on occasion had been on the brink of death. And then he felt kind of bad. So he revived them and let them leave. Mm -hmm. And none of these people told on him? I'm guessing not, or they weren't taken seriously. I don't know. There were no reports on that that I found. Oh. Right? Six or seven people? I'd be like, there's a crazy motherfucker. That is a lot of people to be like, hey. Bye. This guy tried to kill me. Yeah, he, like, tried to strangle me, and, yeah. Maybe, though, like, with the time, they were scared because they were homosexual, and maybe they thought they wouldn't be able to. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so... A further search for additional remains at Cranley Gardens revealed the lower section of a torso with two legs and a bag in the bathroom. And a skull, a section of a torso. At the old place still? No, this is the first one. I mean, the new one. There was a section of a torso and various bones in the tea chest. The same day, Nilsson accompanied police to the Melrose Avenue. So that's the first one. Okay. Where he identified the three locations in the garden where he had burned the remains of his victims. So remember, there he could go outside and just get rid of it. Now, this is <laughs> this was his downfall. Why did you move? So, under English law, the police had 48 hours in which to charge Nilsson or release him. Even though they had all this stuff, you have to charge him. So, assembling the remains of the victims, killed at Cranley Gardens on the floor of the mortuary, Professor Bowen was able to confirm the fingerprints on one body matched those on police files of Sinclair. So, one of the guys he said he killed, they actually were like, yes, that is him. On February 11th, Nilsson was charged with Sinclair's murder, and police interviewed Nilsson on 16 separate occasions over the following days. Those interviews totaled over 30 hours. All right, Nilsson was adamant that he was uncertain as to why he killed, simply saying, I'm hoping you'll tell me that. Oh, because they know. Yeah, because they know. And he was adamant that the the decision to kill was not made until moments before the act of murder. Most victims had died by strangulation. On several occasions, he drowned the victims once they'd been strangled into unconsciousness. Once the victims had been killed, he typically bathed the victim, shaved any hair from the torso to conform it to his physical ideal, and applied makeup to any obvious blemishes upon the skin. He dressed the body in socks and underwear, and then draped the victims around him and talked to the corpses as if they were still alive. With most victims, he masturbated as he stood alongside or knelt above the body, and he also confessed to having occasionally engaged in sexual activity with their bodies, but repeatedly stressed to investigators he'd never actually penetrated his victims, explaining that his victims were, quote, too perfect and beautiful for the pathetic ritual of commonplace sex. The bodies of the victims killed at the previous address were kept for as long as decomposition would allow. Upon noting any major signs of decomposition in a body, he stowed it beneath the floorboards, right? So that's when he did it. He's like, okay, I can't hang out with you anymore. Now you have to go into the floorboards. If the body did not display any signs of decomposition, he occasionally alternately uh, put it beneath the floorboards and then retrieved it again. And then, you know, did his thing. 
and uh, would again like start to put makeup on the bodies because he's like, oh, it's starting to decompose. I'm going to hide those blemishes. So he started to put makeup on the bodies. He confirmed that on four, Caitlin has the worst look on her face. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I told you. He confirmed, once I was in this, guys, I couldn't start over. I was already like six pages in. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to have to keep going on this roller coaster. Um, okay. So he confirmed that on four occasions, he'd removed the accumulated bodies from beneath his floorboards and dissected the remains. And on three of these occasions, he had then disposed of the remains upon the bonfire, right? On more than one occasion, he removed the internal organs from the victim's bodies and placed them in bags and dumped them behind the fence to be eaten by wildlife. Okay. So... In the guard department, he would burn them in his bonfire. But then he would take other things and feed the wildlife. What the fuck? This is the part where I, um, yeah. I just didn't feel good when I read this part. Oh, this is the part? I'm sorry. There, There's lots of parts, but this one's pretty bad. All of the bodies of the victims killed at the first apartment, Melrose Avenue, were dismembered after several weeks or months of intermittent spats or intermittent time beneath the floorboards. He recalled that the putrefaction of their bodies made this task so vile. Okay, so he's thinking it's vile. He recalled having to fortify his nerves with whiskey and having to grab handfuls of salt with which to brush aside maggots from the remains revolting right i yeah i gagged he said he would often vomit as he dissected the bodies he got himself into this situation i don't feel bad for him at all before he would wrap the dismembered limbs inside plastic bags and carry them to the bonfire how did no one see this they're in plastic bags i mean what the? well that's why i was like can people see this garden or is it just i mean you know i've had apartments before where you, yeah, there's a garden apartment, and then you've got the garden, and then there's apartments above it. So you can see outside. I mean, people saw him burning. They just were like, okay. I, okay, when I think of a garden apartment, I guess I'm envisioning, like, a little, like, backyard seating area, essentially. Yeah. With, like, maybe a couple trees and, like, some bushes or something. Like, it's, like, a little... Yeah, but you're, but you're the garden apartment means you're, like, you're, like, the basement, pretty much. You're like underground is your apartment. And then you get to the first floor and then you get to the second floor. So when you live in a garden apartment, it's the one that's below ground level. So he was down there, but he also got to be in the garden. That's my understanding. Maybe it's different here. I don't know. He's all over the fucking place. Well, remember that case that we talked about before where it was like a fourplex or whatever? Yeah. And they had a totally different terminology for it yeah yeah but i also i'm not a realtor so i don't know (laughs) me either what this terminology i don't understand what garden apartment is that the only i mean garden apartment in the u.s means what i said but in the uk it couldn't it could very well mean he has his own thing but still like neighbors would be like dude he is literally burning a bonfire in the backyard right yeah so yeah okay So, immediately prior to his dissecting the victim's bodies, he masturbated as he knelt alongside the corpses, and then he said that this was his symbolic gesture of saying goodbye to his victims. That's a weird goodbye. Okay. So, when questioned as to whether he had any remorse for his crimes, he said, I wish I could have. I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. He also emphasized that he really did not take any pleasure from the act of killing, but he worshipped the art and act of death. I don't really know what that means. So he didn't want to kill them, but when they were dead, he thought it was like art, pretty much. He just was like finding this physical ideal in this this partner who could never leave him. Okay. So yeah, crazy. After his lengthy confession very lengthy he was held at brixton prison pending trial while there he wrote over 50 notebooks of his memories to assist the prosecution so he did he was like sure here you go here's 50 notebooks and he drew 
what he referred to as sad sketches, which detailed his treatment of some of the victims. He seemed ambivalent about his fate and turn at turns without remorse and then showing concern about public attitude toward him. He ended up filing, firing his legal counsel, then rehired the same legal counsel, and then fired them again before the trial. That's not smart. His trial commenced on October 24th, 1983, and he was charged with six counts of murder and two charges of attempted murder. He pleaded not guilty. He just After he just confessed to everything and 50 wrote 50 notebooks. notebooks. Yep. But he said, I had diminished responsibility due to a mental defect. Oh, okay. All right. Here we go. Mm-hmm. All right. So the primary dispute between the prosecutor and defense was not whether or not he had killed these people because he did, um, but his state of mind before and during the killings. So the prosecution counsel, Alan Green, argued that Nilsen was sane in full control of his actions and had killed with premeditation. The defense counsel, Ivan Lawrence, argued that Nilsen suffered from diminished responsibility, rendering him incapable of forming the intention to commit murder and should therefore be convicted only of manslaughter. Yeah, I don't think manslaughter should even be a word we mention here. (laughs) The prosecution counsel opened the case for the Crown by describing the events of February 83 leading to the identification of human remains in the drains at Cranley Gardens and Nilsson's arrest, the discovery of three dismembered bodies in his property, his detailed confessions, his leading investigators to the charred bone fragments of 12 further victims at Melrose Avenue, and the efforts he had taken to conceal his crimes. That's a pretty... Pretty damning prosecution. The first witness to testify for the prosecution was Douglas Stewart, who testified that in 1980 he had fallen asleep in a chair in Nilsen's flat, only to wake up to find his ankles bound to a chair and Nilsen strangling him with a tie as he pressed his knees to his chest. He was able to overpower Nilsen and testified that Nilsen had then shouted, like, out the door as he was running out, Fine, take my money! So... I don't think that you don't have sense of mind if you are like, oh, wait, oh, people are going to hear it, so I'm going to pretend like he's robbing me, yeah, right? right? So the prosecution was like, Nilsson's rational, cool presence of mind and that he hoped to be overheard by other tenants. He's like, no, he is not insane, like, yeah. in that respect, right? Yeah, he knew. Upon cross-examination, the defense counsel sought to undermine Stewart's credibility. And he's like, they were like, there's minor inconsistencies in the testimony. And, you know, he had consumed too much alcohol that night in question. They're like, your memory is selective. And you're magnifying your story that you've told people before. So just trying to, you know, victim shame pretty much. On October 25th, Paul Nobbs provided testimony to the prosecution, um, which the prosecution asserted was evidence of Nilsen's self-control and ability to refrain from homicidal impulses. Immediately after the testimony of Nobbs had concluded, Carol Stodder took the stand to recount how in 1982, Nilsen had attempted to strangle and drown him. Sorry, Carl Stodder. Nilsen had attempted to strangle and drown him before bringing him, quote, back to life. So that's one of them that he... Remember, he would drown and then be like, oh, I feel bad. And drown and, oh, I feel bad. Now you can leave. Great idea. So DCIJ then recounted the circumstances of Nelson's arrest and his, quote, calm, matter-of-fact confessions before reading to the court several statements that were volunteered by Nelson following his arrest. Yeah, just sitting in the car looking out the window like, yeah, that was like three out of like 15. I know. <laughs> what? What? Oh, my God. So, in one of these statements, Nilsen had said to DCIJ, I have no tears for my victims. I have no tears for myself, no, nor those bereaved by my actions. Okay. Jay admitted it was unusual for anyone accused of such horrific crimes to be so forthcoming in providing information. And, and then so nonchalant about it after. Right? <laughs> and he conceded upon questioning by defense that Nilsson not only provided most of the evidence against himself. Yeah, well, you showed him where fucking everything was. I know. But he also encouraged the discovery of evidence. 
and that and it contradicted his own version of events. He like literally showed them everything. He showed them the bones he crushed, literally everything. Can you imagine who was living in that apartment at this time? If there was someone, and he went back and he's like, "Well, I killed all these people here. I burnt them in the yard." And you'd be like, "What?" Oh, good God, dude, that would scar my ass for life. Yeah. I tell you what. Yeah. So following uh, Jay's testimony, DCS. D.S. Chambers recited Nilsen's formal confession to the court. This testimony included graphic descriptions of the ritualistic and sexual acts that Nilsen performed with his victims' bodies, his various methods of storage of bodies and body parts, dismemberment and disposal, and the problems with decomposition, particularly regarding the colonies of maggots. Several jurors were visibly shaken throughout this testimony. Can you imagine being a juror on this case? Holy shit. Others looked at Nilsson with disbelief expressions on their face as he as Nilsson just listened to the testimony and like he would just looked like indifferent the whole time. The testimony lasted until the following morning when the prosecution included several exhibits into evidence. These Exhibits of evidence were the cooking pot, in oh, which God, that he was like that he boiled heads the in. Flesh off of. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> the cutting board. You're like, the cutting board he had used to dissect some bodies, and several rusted catering knives he had formerly that had formerly belonged to one of his victims. So oh, he used one of yeah. his victims' knives. What an idiot! What the. F- if he didn't he have his own catering knives? Come on. Yeah, he, he used to literally for the army. Yeah. Okay. Yikes. All right. Two psychiatrists testified on behalf of the defense. The first of these, James McKeith, began his testimony on the 26th of October. He testified as to how, through a lack of emotional development, Nilsson experienced difficulty expressing any emotion other than anger and his tendency to treat other human beings as components of his fantasies. The psychiatrist also described Nilsson's association between unconscious bodies and sexual arousal, stating that Nilsson possessed narcissistic traits, an impaired sense of identity, and was able to depersonalize other people. But it's not like he was, I don't think he was depersonalizing because he was like, now you're my companion. Yeah. Yeah. He stated his conclusions that Nilsson displayed many signs of maladaptive behavior, the combination of which in one man was lethal. These factors could be attributed to an unspecified personality disorder from which uh, McKeith believed Nilsson had suffered. All right. There's another psychiatrist that testified for the defense, Patrick Galloway. He diagnosed Nilsson with a, quote, borderline false self as if pseudo-normal narcissistic personality disorder. Wow. Okay. Okay. With occasional outbreaks of schizoid disturbances. Schizoid. Just, just occasional outbreaks. Just, yeah, occasional. Yeah. Then okay. Nilsson managed most of the time to keep at bay. Uh, this psychiatrist stated that... He's doing that, great. Yeah, he's doing real good. He uh, said that in episodic, ep- episodic breakdowns, Nilsson became predominantly schizoid. Acting in an impulsive, violent, and sudden manner. I don't know how this helps him at all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, he's just like impulsive, violent, sudden schizo. It's like, no, that's a problem. Yeah. I don't even care if you're only like one eighth of the time acting like that. That's a problem. So he further adds that someone suffering from these episodic breakdowns is most likely to disintegrate under circumstances of social isolation. In effect, Nilsson was not guilty of malice afterthought, and upon cross-examination, he largely focused upon the degree of awareness shown by Nilsson and his ability to make decisions. He conceded that Nilsson was intellectually aware of his actions, but stressed that due to his personality disorder, he did not appreciate the criminal nature of what he had done. On October 31st, the prosecutor called Paul Bowden to testify in rebuttal of the psychiatrist who had testified for the defense. So prior to the trial, Bowden had interviewed the defendant on 16 separate occasions and interviews totaling over 14 hours. So he knew Nilsson pretty well. Over two days, Bowden testified that although he found Nilsson to be abnormal in common sense, 
<laughs> what a way to put that. Yeah, it's hilarious. He concluded that Nilsson was manipulative and he'd been capable of forming relationships, but he had also forced himself to objectify people. He refuted the testimony of the two psychiatrists and testified that he found no evidence of maladaptive behavior and that Nilsson suffered from no disorder of the mind. Following the closing arguments of both prosecution and defense, the jury retired considering their verdict on November 3rd of 83. The following day, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty upon six counts of murder and one attempted murder with a unanimous verdict of guilty in relation to the attempted murder of Nobbs. So Nelson was sentenced to life imprisonment with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. Just a recommendation? So following his conviction, he was transferred to HMP Wormwood Scrubs. What a name. (laughs) To begin his sentence. As a Category A prisoner, he was assigned to his own cell, but he was able to mix freely with other inmates, and he did not lodge an appeal. What are you going to say? Yeah. So, December of 83... Nilsson was cut on the face and chest with a razor blade by an inmate, resulting in injuries requiring 89 stitches. Holy cow. That's a lot of stitches. Uh, He was briefly transferred to HMP Parkhurst before transferring, before being transferred to HMP Wakefield, where he remained until 1990. In 91, he was transferred to a vulnerable prison unit at HMP Full Sutton upon concern for his safety. He remained there until 93 when he was transferred again to HMP Whitmore as a Category A prisoner. But this time increased segregation from other inmates because people wanted to fuck him up. Yeah. I mean, I would think so. Yeah. So the minimum term of 25 years imprisonment to which he was sentenced in 83 was replaced by a whole tariff by Home Security Michael Howard in December 94. This ruling ensured that he would never be released from prison, and he accepted his punishment. So in the years following his incarceration, he composed an unpublished 400-page autobiography entitled The History of the Drowning Boy. This title was a reference to his concepts of the tranquility of death following his grandfather's death, and he also had a near-fatal drowning in 54. So in his autobiography, he states that being with, beginning with his service in the army, he constantly lived two separate lives, his real life and his fantasy life. He writes, When I was with people, I was in the real world, and in my private life, I snapped instantly into my fantasy life. I could oscillate between the two with instant ease. With reference to his murders, he claimed that his emotional state upon the dates of the murders in conjunction with the amount of alcohol he had consumed were both core factors in his decision to kill. He further said that when feeling low, he seized an opportunity to satisfy his sexual fantasy that he had developed and, you know, when the victim was young and attractive and passive and he was the older active partner, temporarily relieving him of that general feeling of, like, loneliness and inadequacy. All right, so in t- 2003, Nilsson was again transferred back to HMP Full Sultan, where he remained incarcerated as a Category A prisoner. In the prison workshop, he translated books into Braille. So he at least got a hobby. He translated books into Braille? Yeah, weird. He spent much of his free time reading and writing and was allowed to paint and compose music upon a keyboard. How do you even do that? Is it like a punch? I have no idea. He also exchanged letters with people who sought his correspondence. Why? Why do people do that? They're like, oh, he he dismembered people and put them down a drain and they had to pull the chunks out. Let's talk to him. Yeah. It's a great idea. They always do. Fucking weirdos. Okay. On May 10th, Nilsson was taken from HMP Full Sutton, Sutton to York Hospital after complaining of severe stomach pains. He was found to have a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, and they repaired it. But then he suffered from a blood clot as a complication to the surgery and died on May 12th. 
Nilsen's body was cremated. The service was held with only five mourners present, including three prison officers and the individual with whom Nilsen had corresponded while in prison. So they even attended the funeral. No family members, surprise. Oh, yeah. Who's surprised about that? Were present at the service. And that's it. Most of them were dead or didn't even have a relationship with him anyway, right? Yep. So that's what I've got for you. Yeah, I don't know. I, um... (laughs) (laughs) You're lost for words. (laughs) I'm cracking up that he thought he needed to go clean shit out of drains throughout the fucking apartment complex and somebody caught him and he's like, oh, what's up? (laughs) And then the cops come and he's like, oh, fuck it. Just come on. Let's go talk about it. I'm just going to tell you everything. Everything. And then wrote 50 notebooks and drew his, quote, sad sketches. Yeah. Just come check it out. So this, he, these guys are in these bags over here. I'm pretty sure there's something under there. Oh, I used to live at this place. There's tons of good shit over there. We got to go check that out, too. Like, can you just imagine? It's like somebody, like, I bet they just about shit. They were like, what? Oh, my God. I mean, because, and the. The people that lived in the apartment were like, what's happening with the fucking pipes? Like, what's up with the water pressure? What's up with the lack of being able to flush your toilet? Like, what is going on? And he's just, like, outside, like, hmm, I don't know. imagine being the pipe guy who had to come, like, and he's like, oh, dear God. Yeah, that was a first in his career, We should probably get the cops out here, because I think this is out of my pay grade. Yeah, he's like, there's bones and shit down here. There's all kinds of, like, they said, like, gooey, gushy, nasty shit. Uh, I know, right? I left some of that out. I went, I was like, <clears throat> like, literally about to puke while I was doing this. I'm like, that's the sickest thing I've ever heard. Real nasty. Can you imagine the smell <laughs> jumping down that manhole? Well, it's just like, that was the thing with Dahmer, too, is like his place started to smell so bad that people were like, what the fuck is going on? Yes. Yes. And there was um, also, remember when um, Dahmer had somebody escape from his place? He screamed out at him, too. Like, it's the same thing. Like, you're trying to be like, oh, shit, I'm going to get caught. Well, he actually went out and talked to the cops. Yeah. And was like, oh, it's my boyfriend. We got a lover's spat. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, oh, don't want to touch that. Yep, exactly. That's, I think, why those people were like, Ugh, I got out of that shit. I'm just out of here. I'm not even going to say anything. It's just whatever. But, yeah, this dude went on forever. And all about loneliness. But remember, Dahmer did the same thing. He, he didn't want people to leave. to leave. Yeah, yeah, it was the same thing. Yeah. Mm. This guy's in Scotland, and yikes. I wonder what they would have done if they met each other. They could have <laughs> just been together. Oh, he was way older than him. Dahmer liked younger, and Dahmer didn't like, he liked dark-skinned. Yeah, he did. He did. He had an affinity for... And this guy liked young guys, because he wanted to be the, like, experienced, older partner, and he wanted these young, beautiful, ideal boys. Can you imagine what the ex-boyfriend that used to live with him in that garden apartment was like? He was like, oh, good lord. He's like, holy... I mean, can you... Dodged a bullet there. Yeah. He, I mean... Oh, he was lucky. He was really, really lucky. They actually let him leave. Yes, he did. Whew. All right. Well, I had never heard of him. And I was like, yep, I'm going to cover this crazy monster. I um, heard the name, but I didn't. I wasn't. I, I don't know. You know, there's so yeah. many fucking weirdos. It's like, how do you keep up? Yeah. And I don't usually cover people from overseas. I don't know why. Because um, I guess there's plenty of them around, you know, the Here. actual, you know, United <laughs> States. But I saw him and I was like, wow, this is, this is Dahmer-esque and really fucking crazy. So you're all welcome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, even though it's a crazy story, it is interesting. And what the psychiatrist had to say too. It's so like, what the hell? So anyway, all right. What was our trivia last week? It was traumatizing. So last week I asked you guys, who, while on parole for armed robbery, killed a man by sticking a screwdriver in his ear and twisting it around and then dissected the body and put select parts of it down the garbage disposal? Ah, see? And that... <laughs> we're going full circle here. And that was Robert Dale Conklin. God, what is... Guys, stop putting shit in the drain. Stop. I okay, so this week's question is... Well, it's just not a very popular name. Yeah, I know. Um, Okay. This week's question is, 
who killed a man during a robbery, then, when being transported to a hearing for their crimes, killed an attorney, then got life in prison for the first and the death penalty for the second. So let me, that one was That's a little much. Let say me it say it again. Who killed a man during a robbery, and then, while being transported to a hearing for their crimes, killed an attorney? Got life in prison for the robbery murder and then death penalty for killing the attorney. My God. Great decisions all around. Okay. Well, let us know. Did he make answer the other one, by the way? Let's look. So we did have one person answer last week, and she was, of course, correct, and that is Strawberry Cheesecake. Oh, that's our favorite girl. Uh, yeah, she's the only one that ever answers our trivia, so. <laughs> Come on, guys. She needs a little bit of Yeah, uh, she's going to need some competition. competition around here. She's just, like, literally whooping all of you guys. What's going on here? Yeah. Um, it's, might be partially my fault because I've been forgetting to post it, but we're going to be better about that. So, anyway, it's also on the episode, if you're listening, and you, you don't have to answer it just because I posted it. No. Nope. You can answer it because you heard it. For sure. And it's on our website. Yes. Yeah. So it's three places. So, yeah. So thank you guys so much for listening, as always. If you have any suggestions, send them our way. We are open to those. And, yeah, I guess that's it, guys. As always, remember, don't, don't get in the van. van.